happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 239 for November 17th, 2021. My name is Dr. Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana's state virtual school located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in lovely and kind of snowy Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, I don't think snow's dropping, but good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am doing great. Wow, snow. It's uh, actually, we had our first freeze on Friday last week, I guess, or maybe it was Saturday. Anyway, and we're getting into the 30s tonight, but no snow here yet. But that's a clear sign of fall and moving to winter, so... That's yep, exciting. Absolutely. Yep. And I'm uh, the uh, the estimates is that Montana will have a more serious winter this year, which as long as it comes with snowpack, I am happy to put up with a significant winter if it means less chance for fires in the summer as the drought still dominates the West. But I don't think we're talking about weather tonight. Wes, what is the attic situation room all about? We are here to meet Peggy George live. <laughs> Welcome, Peggy. <laughs> And on the way, we're going to talk about the past week's technology news through an educational lens. So we always have a large lineup of links that you can always find at edtechsr.com slash links. And for tonight's show, we have, man, you've got to scroll through a long list of shows to get to this page. Um, we have our list of topics. So we can choose from Apple News, Tech Corrections, Security, Microsoft, Google, Social Media, Hardware, a new topic this week, the metaverse, although we have talked about that a couple weeks, miscellaneous and our geeks of the week. So Dr. Neifer, as the host, where would you like to take the ship of gab tonight? Well, it feels like we've talked a lot about the kind of practical stuff at the beginning of the show. Maybe we should switch that around. Why don't we go ahead and start with the tech correction and the um, esoteric and impractical. Yes. Yeah. No <laughs> kidding. And yet to come to fruition. So like, it seems like it's sputtering along, but uh, we'll have to see where it goes. So you want to start with the tech dirt article? Sure. Sure. So on um, yesterday, November 16th, uh, Tech Dirt reported, um, or the headline is, Facebook whistleblower testifies before Grand Committee on Disinformation, which includes countries that, that lock people up for criticizing the government. And I had not heard of this very, I guess, well, it calls it Orwellian, uh, grandiose, perhaps, grandiosely titled uh, International Grand Committee on Disinformation. Uh, we've been talking the last several weeks about Frances Haugen, who was a former Google employee and Facebook employee, and her testimony before the U.S. Congress. She's been making the rounds in Europe, and in this case, um, I think this is to maybe uh, folks that were in, I wanted to say Holland, but um, the, the point of this article it's basically that everyone is posturing to try to regulate social media, and there's all kinds of agendas here. There were parliamentarians from Singapore uh, who were part of this who were just saying, you know, clearly Facebook can't regulate themselves. We have to, you know, take action. Um, but the author points out that Singapore in 2019 passed a uh, called, it's called Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipula Manipulation Act, the POFMA. Uh, and so they were able to use uh, those laws and existing laws to penalize peaceful expression and protest that activists, lawyers, and online media companies 
uh, had shared, uh, put, you know, prosecute some of them, um, bring suits of civil def- defamation, threats of contempt of court, and basically silence free speech. So um, another sort of dark side of this whole conversation. I mean, we see this happen with the conversations about Google and journalism. I mean, lots of posturing for different groups that have diff- different agendas, um, but certainly not everyone who is saying, yes, regulate Facebook, I think has the public interest as we would understand it in the United States in mind. Um, we would certainly, I think, as a nation, you know, support um, journalists and the ability to uh, stand up against oppression of government, et cetera. And that is certainly not something that is happening in Singapore. And perhaps the authorities are going to use this as an excuse to, you know, make sure that their line is the one that people hear and opposition voices are silent. So I've not really heard that kind of a take on the tech correction and the push for regulation. And I thought that was an important perspective to bring forward. Although I will admit tech dirt is not necessarily one of my constant reads and I can't even really, you know, I know I've heard of it before. It's not something that is an unknown news source to me, but um, I had, I had not heard that particular perspective on the tech correction before. Yep. That is incredibly interesting. And then um, I've, I've heard a little bit about this. You want to talk a little bit about, too, about the Vice article about the civil war in Ethiopia? Yeah. So Vice reported on November 8th uh, that Facebook is, well, the headline is Facebook, how Facebook is stoking a civil war in Ethiopia. And this dovetails with a number of things that we've heard in other places, including from Francis Haugen's testimony that, you know, Facebook uh, has created a platform that has become the de facto Internet and communication medium in many parts of the world, yet they have been dismal in their efforts to try and address disinformation and in some cases even provide a reasonable number of native language speakers in some of these countries that certainly happened in Myanmar with the um, the the, uh, the genocide and the refugee crisis with the Rohingya minority. And so um, this is an article detailing how online hate is adding fuel to the country's deadly conflict and, you know, Facebook is, is failing to stop it. And so um, it's, if, 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 as you do research about Facebook globally, there are just numerous cases like this. And these were detailed really well in that Wall Street Journal uh, article that we series that we've talked about called the Facebook Files. Um, and it's just tragic. You know, power of, of Facebook and the power of social media is tremendous. And with great, you know, power comes great responsibility to quote Spider Man or whoever wrote that. I don't know exactly. Who the original author of that is, but the point is, Facebook has a lot of responsibility, and the the criticism that they're getting, I personally believe, is is highly warranted. And this is an example of you know impacts outside the United States, but this isn't just an anomaly and a one off. This kind of thing has been happening in multiple places. So um, you know that perhaps there's a lot of depressing sides to this, but one is that you know, coming up with some regulation tomorrow for Facebook is really not going to, is not going to solve this problem. And I am not at all expecting to get a callback from this. But on a related personal note, I will mention that I attended a job fair uh, a couple of weeks ago, a virtual one on a Friday. Facebook wasn't present, but they had a booth. And so you could go check out their uh, their uh, different job postings. And I actually, I actually did apply for a position 
uh, I think it's in Europe and it has to do with, with ethics, but like we need folks in Facebook. Frances Haugen didn't feel like she was successful or could be successful in moving the needle with the ethical behavior of Facebook. But I personally think that's what we need to push for, you know, maybe even more so than regulation because this is the speed of change and the, the uh, delay or um, lag, I guess is what I'm looking for. The lag that we see in, in regulation around, you know, a lot of these issues, it just, we need to have ethical and, and moral leaders in, on all companies and in all organizations. But yeah, I think it's another dramatic example of, of how we need change and that change can come about in different ways. And I would say, you know, we need to be encouraging the leadership and the employees of Facebook to do the right thing. And maybe that sounds silly, but <laughs> I think that is as viable an option now as, as, you know, hoping that regulation is going to solve these issues. Hopefully we're going to get some privacy law in the United States at some point. Right. And that's going to be, I think a step in the right direction, but not a, I mean, we just haven't had any good news from out of Facebook for, for quite a while. So the announcement of the metaverse and thinking we're moving to the ready player one world, I guess maybe perceived by some is exciting, but you know, that's, that's still about investments that they're making in a future that they're trying to bring about rather than right. something that's happening today. Well, and related to that, the Verge reported yesterday that Meta, this new uh, umbrella company that, that uh, Facebook has evolved into is starting to really lock down um, uh, uh, message or communication internally, in part because of the extraordinary number of links that have happened at the at the company for the last uh, well, a couple of years, and it's slowing down research, it's slowing down internal conversation, and they're starting to be kind of a, a, a well. It, yeah, what I perceive after reading the article is that less and less people at Facebook are part of critical conversations and are receiving the fruits of internal research. And one thing I'll I'll give credit to is I do think that Facebook does spend a, a fair bit of time in the research field. Like they want to understand better uh, uh, how these tools are used and, and maybe misused too. But it, it also seems like from the leaks is that they, they aren't always paying attention to negative results uh, that, that their own internal research talks about. And I think, um, you know, it, it, the bottom line is, is Facebook is, if Facebook is going to survive into the future, its users need to trust it. And one of the things that seems overwhelmingly obvious to me is that there are at least, uh, uh, well, of, of my friends on Facebook, and I'm uh, uh, friends, quote unquote friends with I, uh, eight, nine hundred people on Facebook. And, you know, um, I it's it's a tool I use to stay connected with people that, you know, otherwise I wouldn't have a chance to have direct communication with. The bottom line, though, is that a lot of people are leaving Facebook and don't seem interested in coming back. Um, the same is also true of things like Instagram and Twitter, but it doesn't seem nearly as profound as Facebook. And I just think that there's a lot of people that simply don't trust don't trust the platform. And um, I, I don't think you know, uh, plugging leaks to use, uh, you know, perhaps a more positive vernacular, um, or maybe a, a more honest way of looking at it is, you know, shutting down all internal to external communication is really the way to go about this. Like, I feel like they, there needs to be a, a, a an honest conversation with the community about Facebook and other social media technologies to see if there's ways that we can evolve it for the better. And, um, you know, like I've talked about in the past, 
it's not all bad news because I, I'll, there's a lot of great in social media technologies. It's just that we have to have critical community conversations about what the limits are. And we need the tools to be regulated, uh, whether it's internally regulated or externally regulated, in order to prevent some of the clear implications of those technologies. And locking down, uh, I don't think, is the way to go about that. And I think the the broader problem at Facebook is really a lack of leadership. I mean, I just don't think that Mark Zuckerberg has an ethical worldview and the vision to move the company forward in the way that a lot of people would hope he would. I just, I don't think he has that as a leader and can he acquire that? I don't know. I don't see any, any, um, you know, hints or anything that would make me optimistic about that. I know there's been a lot of folks making fun of just all the apologies and, you know, the, the repetition about, well, sorry, we'll try to do better. Um, I put a link Actually, I, I didn't put it in, I guess I could put it in Facebook too, but I put it in YouTube for that uh, position. It's called Privacy Policy Manager, AI Policy and Governance. I mean, there's, I would, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of really, really smart people at Facebook that are working to do this, but it does appear that they're in much more of a damage control, you know, mode. Although with Meta, I don't know, in terms of messaging and, when thing when there's crises, I mean, people want to try to control the narrative and not not just be responsive and reactive. And it kind of feels like that was part of what Facebook did with their meta uh, announcement was to try to talk about the future and talk about some other things, perhaps besides just you know all of these these terrible things. Um, I mean, one of the fundamental issues, and I think I talked about this article. Maybe it was either it was in the last two weeks. It might have been last week. Uh, but it was this really, really great, um, I think it was a Wall Street Journal article, too. There was like 10 different authors that all talked about how to how to fix social media. And, you know, some of them are talking about the foundational economic theory of surveillance capitalism that undergirds all this and saying, you know, this is this is what's broken. Um, nobody that I know of in a significant position of government or corporate leadership is saying at this point, outside of academia and journalism, we need to, you know, completely turn this model on its head and, and, and not allow surveillance capitalism to be the governing model of what we, we see happening right now with so much of, of our social media and internet platforms today, where we trade data for free services and companies sell those at a huge profit. And then folks can do a lot of different things with, with that data. So, you know, it just, um, I, I do think to remain optimistic and not to get real pessimistic, it is good for us to think about local issues and not to just have our headspace on these big national issues because, you know, it can be very, uh, distressing and, and even depressing mm -hmm. to, to focus there. Um, but on the other hand, what, look at the local issues in Ethiopia. Look at the way that Facebook and the ways that it's being utilized and, and abused, um, you know, is is leading to a lot of harm. So, yeah, we uh, we need to continue to grapple with this. And if anybody out there is listening to listening to podcasts, I know one that I haven't checked in with in a while is Ethan Zuckerberg's um, The Future of the Internet. I mean, there's some really great thinking and great work that different groups are doing around these issues. But I don't know that we're going to I don't I don't I don't know. You would think that if things were going to coalesce to a point where we're going to have legislation and change 
maybe it would happen, you know, and the Francis Haugen testimony has really seemed to, to push us in that direction. I don't know what it will take for us, for instance, just to get some privacy legislation in the United States, which would be, I think, a positive step forward. Um, so, you know, sometimes it just kind of feels like we're, we're slogging back into the bog of, you know, the mud of all of this kind of stuff. And it's like, it, it's such a mess. And I don't know that other than having sort of like, you know, security and, and cyber attacks and hacks, right? Oh, there was another breach. There were millions more right. breached, you know, and it just, it just sounds like it's sort of the same story over and over again. Um, so I apologize for people are like, this show is, this show is garbage. All they do is say, is say that <laughs> the social media landscape is very polluted and it's terrible and it's being weaponized by bad actors. Uh, you know, I, I do want to say more than that, but. Anyway, well, and, and, and the bottom line too, is that, I mean, this is why it's so complex for me personally. Uh, Wes and I would not even know each other if it wasn't for social media, right? Social media and the technologies that we utilize to stay in connection um, there's simply no, there's simply no alternative to them in, in the non-social media world, right? Like we met via Twitter. It led to face-to-face meetings later when we were in the same place at the same time. And now we host a podcast together where we have an opportunity to once a week have an hour long conversation about, about topics that interest us. I'm glad you're listening, uh, dear listener, but that's not the reason why we do this, right? Like we, we like to have listeners. We certainly want to share some thoughts we have and, and get your feedback. But the bottom line is, is that we continue to do this week to week because it's something that allows us to have an opportunity to have a, 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 a professional and a, and a collegial conversation that, you know, we're happy to invite you to, to listen to. Um, and that wouldn't have happened short of social media technologies. Absolutely. And I want to tell a good, a little story here. So I just dropped a link into my food blog. So <laughs> I, I, part of the reason, and I think I wrote about this tonight, actually in a post, I, part of the reason I enjoy sharing food so much and I love cooking, but it's just like, it's great to focus on, right? It's not politics. It's not negative, And people can get around that and get excited about it. Well, Sue Waters, shout out to Sue, who's in Australia. I think she's still in Perth. Uh, she used to do a lot with Edublogs. Anyway, it's amazing. She helped me troubleshoot my WordPress image issue that I had this week. And like, there's no way, you know, absent Facebook, which is where we made this connection, you know, that I would be getting that help. I needed to make my header image 2000 pixels wide and I had it too short. And sure enough, I did that tonight and it, it worked. I, part of the thing that I loved in the early days of the, the read, write web or the web 2.0 as we, the web 2.0, as we used to call it, you know, in the mid 2000s was the, these kinds of connections that you would have with especially other teachers and educators that there's no way you would have ever been able to encounter these folks, hang out with these people, learn from them. And I actually think part of what I want to do uh, and have dabbled in a little bit is kind of getting back to some of that as far as podcasts and blogs. Social media has really reduced the friction. Some people talk about it's frictionless. It's so easy. And part of that can be dangerous too. I think it's Clay Shirky in that how to fix social media in his article talks about that when things are so fast and frictionless that leads to virality and to some of the problems that we see with the the speed with which things are shared and the lack of vetting and the lack of even reading right because sometimes and i'm guilty of it we just share headlines we don't necessarily read the whole article in depth so anyway shout out to sue um and maybe that's something for all of us to think about in terms of 
where we really are finding the value in social media, the investments that we can make. And I just, I've always enjoyed focusing on and talking about transformate, you know, transformative uses and, you know, relationships, friendships. And there's just the, I mean, Hey, we're on a podcast here. And yes, in fact, I think we have an article about how disinformation is being shared and has been, you know, rampantly shared on podcasts, but on the same, you know, at the same time, this platform has tremendous, incredible power. I mean, Jason, who would have ever thought that you and I could just basically, you know, open up, open up a computer in our houses and then on a regular basis, just sit down and have a conversation like we're literally sitting across the table from each other. I mean, it is we take I, we can take this for granted now, but I mean, this is absolutely incredible with basically zero latency. And then and Peggy's here with us, too. And we're having this conversation. Sometimes other people come as well. But it is just um, this is really, really positive. So I'm glad to kind of put that little twist on it a little bit, because Again, I, we, we maybe we sort of fell into that hole at one point with security. We still talk about security articles, but we don't talk about that. And there's some data breach articles in the show notes this week, so we can talk <laughs> about that too. But, yeah. you know, it, it's important to maintain perspective and to also think about our focus. And so I really, I really do appreciate these tools and these platforms. And I, you know, it, we had a parent university conversation about, social media influencers a couple of weeks ago for our school that I helped lead. And I was really proud of, of one of our, um, one of our administrative leaders, uh, because sometimes I don't hear these kinds of stories. She just shared a great story about her daughter being able to connect to her. She went across the country to college and because of social media, she arrived with a lot of friends because they had already made these connections, already learned all these things about each other. It was just very, very positive. I think we do a disservice to social media and to each other if we are only telling the negative stories. And that is unfortunately too often what we read in the news. And if we at the EdTech Situation Room were to just, you know, read you the negative, if it bleeds, it leads news about social media, that might be the impression we would give as well. So wonderful things are happening on social media every single day. Uh, Jason and I are the beneficiaries of it. And uh, we need to remember that um, for ourselves and then also in the stories that we tell other people, right? Because plenty of people have been scared off of social media and lots of folks probably still are. And there's a lot of good conversations and good opportunities to learn and grow together. And Hey, and maybe even learn to cook better food or new foods or whatever. Like there's all kinds of great ways that, that these technologies have been used and are being used. So yep. we'll maintain that perspective. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Well, should we, I have a couple more social media related articles maybe. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, then I wanted, then I'd like to go to the security one. There's an amazing security article okay, I'd like great. to talk about today. And there's a couple of practical things that I want to talk about tonight too. So, um, the uh, I mentioned this mostly to maybe uh, send me a little bit another direction, but uh, there was an article in today's Verge about how the co-founder of YouTube uh, has predicted the decline of the platform following the, remo- the removal of dislikes, and he's talked about how it's a, a bit of a universally disliked change. Um, uh, and I and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing this name. Uh, Jawad Karin. Is one of the co-founders. This is, you know, uh, 17, 16 years ago of, of YouTube. Um, and it's refer- referred to as the third co-founder of, of, of YouTube saying that, that, um, that it, 
it's just it's heading the wrong direction, and the public response to it is is part of this. And we had a great description last week about why that they went in this direction and the positive piece of that. And that article did turn me a, a bit because I was pretty curious about this too. The one thing I would say, and, and the reason why I wanted to mention this particular topic is that I have seen some arguments in the last week about how it does also help help identify incorrect or misinformation too. And, and I'll give you an example of this. Um, uh, you know, like almost everyone else, YouTube is, is, is a bit of a, uh, you know, flea market of, 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 of information for me. And there's an extraordinary amount of technology tutorials, um, you know, how to root your Android phone, how to replace the battery in your Dell XPS laptop, um, how to replace the screen on, on your uh, Samsung phone, uh, how to fix in, uh, or refurbish an old iPod, um, which was kind of one of my pandemic hobbies. And I'm trying to see if my, my iPod, uh, my working iPod is, is here. Um, uh, we talked about this a little last year, but I have, you know, I did take an old iPod and, uh, re- replace the battery and put an SSD drive in it. So now it's a, a 256 gigabyte iPod, which is massive. Um, and it's got an SSD drive. So it's got a better, uh, battery life. Um, uh, I mentioned this because one of the strategies I use when I'm looking for tutorial videos, there are a lot of tutorial videos that are either outdated or are, are fake, right? They're just not, you know, they're, they're intended to be kind of a, you know, uh, a LOL, uh, uh, released to the community, not one that's intended to, to enlighten or, or, or educate the, the populace. And I oftentimes won't bother with a technology trick on YouTube if the dislikes well outnumber the likes. And if there's 25 likes and, and, and no dislikes, that also is a sign to me that's a valid piece. And again, uh, I'll re- you know, refer you to last week's uh, episode to talk about the, 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 the pretty good reasons why they head in this direction. But I do think that there is a point to be made that it is an information uh, a savvy tool to utilize to help do this. And um, uh, we'll have to see where it goes, I guess. Is, you know, the, the other thing I would also note, there, I don't think there's an alternative to YouTube, a viable alternative to YouTube, right? That's where people host video, right? Billions of minutes of, of, of video are uploaded. I think it's a year now is where that, the billion numbers go. I mean, we contribute 60 minutes just a week just between the two of us, uh, let alone what I know Dr. Fryer does, uh, who has a, a, a long history of posting stuff to YouTube. You know, like, I, I don't know if people like leave in droves. Like, that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. But it is interesting to watch the community respond to that change. Well, and that article, as I scanned it here, doesn't seem to address the core issue that um, the video that I think we had in the show notes last week from YouTube talked about. And that was these coordinated attacks that people have been doing against creators. Um, and so it's this idea of sort of cancel culture or which I don't know. And I'm, I need to get a little more defined in whether... Like, I don't use the word fake news at all, talking to students at all. I talk about polluted information and verifying information. You know, cancel culture is one of these words in the phrases in the culture war that's been 
you know, co-opted and weaponized and whatever. But the, but the idea that we can try to, you know, kick people off of the internet, we can, you know, have so many attacks and, and trolls and they can be doxxed, right? Their, their real life cell number and address and things like that can be put out and, and they can just face a horrendous amount of harassment, both digitally online and in some cases in person, you know, in the face-to-face real world. Um, that is the issue that they were talking about needing to address. And sometimes these are small time creators, but they have political or cultural or other opinions that people don't like. And so in order to address them, these people are, are attacked. It's like a nuclear bomb. People are trying to collaboratively nuke these people, blow up their world and get them to, you know, stop talking or and communicating at all because they disagree with them. And that is absolutely not a way that we should be engaging in a civil society. And so I think that article by this YouTube co-founder, much to his intelligence and savvy and being a co-founder of YouTube, yay, good job for you. Um, he didn't address those issues. And this is a, a critical thing. Sometimes we form in our own minds an idea about a platform or I think this happened with Wikipedia in the early days. A lot of teachers, I know Joyce Valenza is a co-author, I think, or maybe she just shared it. I think she's a co-author on a really nice article recently that was talking about, Hey, we got to look at Wikipedia and the value of it and how it can be utilized and stop trying to tell, you know, kids and adults and everyone it's horrible. It's terrible and, and never use it. I think that when it comes to YouTube, sometimes we, we're we not aware of how dynamic and changeable the environment has been. Um, I mentioned this over a year ago, I'm sure. There was a great three-part series that Destin, who has the video uh, channeled Smarter Every Day, did on the weaponization of social media. He did an, an episode specific about YouTube, one specific about Facebook, and one specific to Twitter. But, I mean... Watch the one about YouTube and I'll grab the link. I'll try to grab the link here in a minute and put it in the show notes. It is unbelievable. And and these are the ways that, you know, different folks are gaming the SEO algorithm, trying to get around content ID, uh, trying to flood the channel with, quote, excrement to quote a. A, a former, uh, you know, member of the last administration, Steve Bannon, who talked about that. It's part of the start part of a strategy to try to, um, you know, just just flood flood the channel with disinformation and with with crap. Literally, it's just amazing because yes, to Jason's point, there's a lot of video that's being uploaded, but there's a lot of it being uploaded by computers, and there are algorithms that are being used to generate content and to slightly modify the content just enough so that content ID doesn't say, oh, that's a copyright violation. Anyway, and that stuff is a couple years old. So I'm glad to see Facebook taking action. This this is related to the tech correction because we're talking about changes that social media companies and tech companies are making in response to different dynamics in the environment as well as criticism. And so where I don't see Facebook doing much substantive, I do see YouTube and Google, you know, making some, some changes. And so anytime you're going to make a, a change to a platform, it's like, you know, if, 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 if Twitter, for instance, let you edit any of your tweets, you know, they did increase the number of characters, right? Did we go up to 240? I think we did from 140 yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's people that, critic, that were, they were critical there. But 
anyway, I, I, I think you're, it's a dynamic information environment. And I've been, um, I re-listened to one of my favorite books of all time. It's by Stephen B. Johnson. Um, and his, he did a PBS series about it. Um, how did we get to now? And um, it's, it's, a, it, it's all about, you know, big time innovations. And innovations are oftentimes not utilized in the same way that the creators and inventors thought that they would be. This has happened throughout time. And the, the ways that these things get utilized, it just, it goes directions that people would not have been able to predict. And so um, we're going to continue to see that, you know, with social media and technology in, in different ways. And obviously some of those ways are negative and dark. And that's part of why we need moral and ethical human beings to be involved in trying to, um, you know, affect the design and, and the, the ways and the rules of engagement and, and also perhaps the, the kinds of government regulations that are in effect there. So glad, I'm personally glad to see YouTube and Facebook making some changes to try to address these issues. Are they going to be perfect? No, but I think we need to see some changes because if we don't, you know, the, the instances of, of bad actors, you know, doing bad things, is not going to necessarily be abated at all. And those things need to be addressed. And then I want to do one last kind of quick article here that's social media is just because it's, it's so interesting how it's playing out, but Spotify is acquired uh, according to uh, the verge on November 11th, uh, a company that's called uh, find a way, which is a, uh, I guess an audio book services company is the best way to describe them. Um, the uh, company provides uh, several uh, several services, including distribution of audiobooks to various platforms. Um, it also has a uh, an audiobook creation service that allows uh, authors to pair up with uh, uh, professional, semi-professional narrators to create audiobooks. And um, it's one of the interesting kind of unknown parts of Spotify. It's kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. There are audiobooks available on Spotify that you can uh, simply take a look at and listen to. The reason why this is interesting to me is because uh, uh, I'm, I'm a, a massive um, um, uh uh, audio consumer? Yeah, well, um, I am, but I, I also, uh, am a huge fan of Audible, right? And, and, and that service. The problem with Audible, though, is, is, it's not, it's really great for me. And I know that there are ways for libraries to, to utilize audio, uh, Audible like services for access to audiobooks for kids. But I wish that there was, that there was better accessible platforms so they could be rolled out more easily in, in K-12 classrooms. And Spotify has been doing a lot of interesting things with various podcast, uh, 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 recording services and tools that you can utilize. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm working on a, um, a presentation for the Northwest Council for Computer Education Conference in February in Seattle, where I'm going to both talk about in separate sessions podcasting as a, a podcasting as a content uh, reservoir, and then separately uh, podcasting as as a, a, a classroom publication uh, piece, which does feel very much like a 2005 presentation. The problem is is that I feel like podcasting keeps getting easier, and you know there are obviously wonderful classroom examples of it implemented, but I still feel like it's an underutilized uh, uh, kind of con uh, 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 structure of, of ed tech inside of classrooms. But I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, I really do like, very much like um, 
uh, uh, some of the decisions that Spotify has made, although as we've talked about in the past, they really do need to dramatically improve the podcasting uh, uh, listening uh, um, structure for it to become a dominant player in that field. So that's all I want to say there. Did you, that last article that you had tweeted, I don't, is that in the show notes? Um, that's the New York Times piece talking about. Oh, it's not. Although let's go ahead and talk about that now and all. Yeah, uh, let's talk about it. Okay. So you want to start? Or you want me to uh, hold on, sure. I need to get the article up. So okay, the article is called "On Podcasts and Radio: uh, Misleading COVID nineteen Talk Goes Unchecked." It's a New York Times article, um, and the thing, the reason it just came to mind is, um, you know, private companies are different than the government. Uh, the the uh, you know amendments to the United States Constitution provide for limits on what the government can do. Uh, private companies are able to really kind of do whatever they want. This article points out that while YouTube, again, to favorably talk about Google, because, you know, Jason and I are Google fanboys here. Um, Google continues to do a bunch of things like deplatforming some folks and, you know, having consequences for people who are repeatedly spreading disinformation, for instance, about COVID-19. Uh, lots of platforms are really not. Uh, Spotify, not really doing a lot. Um, iHeartRadio, which has t like hundreds of, of AM stations and hundreds and hundreds of podcasts, um, really not doing a lot. And that's one of the main groups that's focused on that. Um, Apple as well. And this is a mess, right? I mean, when private companies start to step in and say, hey, you can't say that. And then you're going to try and enforce in, as, a, as a general policy Hey, if somebody, you know, says if somebody is spreading disinformation, let's say around the COVID-19 uh, vaccine or on the on the the issues of COVID-19, man, the challenges of policing that and then determining with nuance, OK, did that step over the line? Did not. We're talking about a, you know, very formidable task. One of the things I've mentioned on the show here and I'm not watching our our Facebook feed, but, you know, both YouTube and Facebook have real-time voice-to-text transcription. So they do a pretty reasonable job transcribing the words that Jason and I say and putting that on the screen, but then that's also available somewhere else. And that means that can be searchable. And so, you know, if we were living in China and we, for instance, were going to talk about Western China, and even in saying this, I'm aware of the fact that Am I going to mark myself for, you know, next time I try, try to travel to China? Oh, my gosh, you said this. But if you want to talk about the, the oppression of the Uyghur minority, the Muslim minority um, in Western China and the ways in which we believe authorities do, you know, over a million, maybe as many as two million people have been moved into these reeducation camps. And anyway, that whole thing, you cannot talk about that. Um, and then there's other issues too, right? With Tiananmen Square and, you know, it, it, things that the Chinese government does not want their public to know about. And they are actively making sure that at least behind the Great Firewall of China, these things are not allowed. Um, anyway, it is messy. It's challenging. I thought it was an excellent article. So you have some comments on it as well. Yeah, I mean, it, the bottom line is, is that it, it, every one of these technologies is the same. It's incredibly empowering 
to have the ability to publish out internationally a weekly podcast. And okay, Wes and I are nerds, right? But it, you know, and we had to go through a couple of iterations to make our technology setup the technology setup we wanted. And and and, and thank goodness for Streamyard because, um, uh, uh, the the, the bottom line is is that without Streamyard, uh, well. Especially with other services uh, 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 shutting down, this is by far the easiest platform I've ever used to broadcast. In fact, um, I use this uh, uh, in in part with my day job at Montana Digital Academy. I uh, 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 participate in in some other streams uh, with the Northwest Council of Computer Education. It's a fabulous platform. Um, but it took us a little while to, to land here, right? But it's, it's really not hard to publish a podcast. There are thousands of great tutorials online. Um, I love all of Dan Benjamin's stuff from the 5 by 5 network because he talks a lot about, uh, you know, uh, kind of podcast, uh, uh, publication. You know, it's very democratizing, but just like blogs, just like social media, just like Twitter accounts, you know, the power of these platforms goes in both directions. In the same way, we love to empower students by helping them uh, 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 tell stories and, and share their experiences and, and question the world. Bad actors can be uh, also problematic in that way. So, um, you know, again, not terrible um uh, uh, that this technology enables, but it, it just comes with a balance in both directions. And we have to be mindful of that. And on the note of Spotify, back to that article, I mean, we do want great companies to stay profitable, right? I, I love Spotify. I mean, at this point I am, I'm very heavily invested in, in its playlists. I mean, back in the day, I think I wrote a post about this on Facebook over the weekend. You know, I'm, I made mixtapes, right? Now, how do kids know about mixtapes? It's because they've seen Guardians of the Galaxy and there's a mixtape on it. But like that was a thing and it was it was time consuming and you had one copy of it because we didn't really do high speed dubbing or whatever. I mean, <clears throat> our, our school musical this weekend was Mamma Mia. Our daughter was in it and it was lovely. It was so fun. And I made a Spotify playlist. And not only is it there for me, I share it on social media. I don't know if anybody else has listened to it or not, but I, I listen to some playlists that classmates of mine from high school have made and shared. It's crazy. It's crazy that that kind of power is in our fingertips. So anyway, I'm yep. just saying that I'm, I want Spotify to hang around. I don't want them to take over podcasting to the point of, oh my gosh, now, you know, if you're not on Spotify, you know, behind their paywall, you know, there's no way you can you can be a podcaster. I really don't think that's going to happen. You know, people feared, you know, Apple and when, when they put podcasting inside iTunes and famously Leo Laporte on the, the Twit network said, we're going to call them netcast because we're, you know, is, is Apple taking over the word podcast? So right. anyway, I'm glad to well, see them monetizing, but on the, on the, on the other hand, you know, it's wonderful to have a vibrant culture of media production and sharing, which is outside the control of a particular, of, of one single government or entity. But you get the good with the bad with that. I mean, and hopefully we're on the side of the good, but you know, that'll be, that's a subjective opinion. So whatever people think. Well, and, and one other thing I want to say about both Spotify and also the, the kind of free flow of information, uh, Spotify is complicated in part because I do think it has negatively impacted the finances of music. And I, and I don't think that that's uh, uh, necessarily a, a black and white issue. I, it's complicated, but um, you know, it's something that, that, that I am mindful of. But then the other thing I want to also mention based on what you just said, Dr. Fryer, is that, 
Um, you know, I also think we still need to find ways to, to, to provide micro payments to producers, right? Like, you know, I, I don't see us going to advertising anytime soon. And I'll just repeat what I said earlier in this, this show. I'm glad you're tuning in. I hope you find value in this. But the bottom line is, is that for me, this is just a real opportunity to have a good conversation every week with a trusted colleague and friend, right? So, um, uh, so we don't need money out of this, right? And 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 we also would very much acknowledge that even if we monetize this podcast, it's not like we're cutting our day jobs to, you know, to take over the airwaves. It would be nice, however, and I would very much participate in if we could find something. And Patreon is close, right? Like, um, uh, 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 and I, and I engage, I think I fund seven or eight creators now on Patreon, not fun. Like I'm, like I'm sending in thousands of dollars. I contribute to, uh, you know, several creators, um, via, uh, a Patreon and that's great. Right. But the bottom line is, is that I really feel like that we should be building systems where, you know, um, I, it, 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 it caught, you know, I, 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 I give five cents to a producer, every week I listen to their podcast or I give 50 cents or 75 cents. I think it would help revolutionize uh, publicly funded, uh, uh, I mean, public listener funded efforts like PBS and NPR. It would also help podcasting out quite a bit too. And not everyone would want to participate. Uh, and, and again, we're a good example of that because we're not doing this for financial gain by any stretch of the imagination. It's a contribution we like to make to the community, but in the end, it's really a conversation between two fellas. So, you know, I, I think that's part of this conversation too. Okay. Maybe that should be an outcome of today's show is that we should dabble with that. You know, I'm a big fan of, of playing with media and, and iterating around the creation of media products. And I think I'm absolutely in agreement that micro payments and the micro payment economy is an important, still nascent, but, but growing uh, thing, you know, Substack as well as Patreon and some of these other tools are enabling some people to quit their day jobs and exclusively, you know, be journalists out there, um, you know, with, with, without a tie to Spotify or Disney or, you know, some, some major network. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit more offline about that. Cause we've talked about maybe doing that. I mean, there's a few costs, right? I think Spotify or StreamYard is like 20 bucks a month or 15 bucks a month. There's some, there is some small charge that we have, but I'm glad again to pay that because this platform is phenomenal and i don't want it to go away yeah. it was they were purchased by somebody or had some kind of merger and i was like anytime that happens you're like yeah you know remember what happened to posturus um yeah you know and what about uh nuzzle man i miss nuzzle every day i think peggy was a nuzzle user as well that was a a wonderful app that would take the articles shared by people you follow on twitter and facebook and then prioritize them and let you know what they are anyway and it went away uh Twitter bottom and and basically killed the platform. So anyway, I think we should can, we should talk about that a little bit um, because we learn as we as we dabble in in some media creation or in using some different tools. You know, we learn some things and perhaps that is something we can do um, to offset a, a few costs as well as learn a little bit about it. Let's talk about some security things since we got about 12 minutes left. Um, I'll do two quick articles. These are both from Ars Technica. From today, uh, headline, hackers backed by Iran are targeting U.S. critical infrastructure, U.S. warns. And I will tell you guys that the more I read articles and books and things like that, and I was a tech director for four years recently, about cyber-like 
the target on our backs, both as individuals, but as communities and as a nation state with cyber attacks, it just keeps in many ways getting bigger and bigger. And so what this article says is that there are some acknowledged published vulnerabilities which have been patched by the company, by Fortinet, uh, which is a big firewall company. And I think Microsoft is the other big one. Yeah, Microsoft Exchange. And so um, unfortunately, IT departments aren't always fast to put in their patches. And so Iranian hackers have now been identified as specifically exploiting these for ransomware attacks and for the kinds of attacks that allow them to get inside systems and then do things, you know, later. Um, so as I contemplate our, our move, which we're hoping to leave the state of Oklahoma uh, this summer, and I'm, uh, I have 11 job applications out actually now, uh, about half of those are with universities for an assistant professor position and some other things too. Hire this guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You need to hire me. Um, I, you know, I would love for us to be in a place where we think about, you know, how resilient can we be if there's some kind of a power grid failure or some kind of significant cyber attack that's going to affect critical infrastructure? Um, you know, I don't want to be, I don't know what the right, you know, the, the, the doomsday guy, but you know, we, we have not seen here in the United States as they have in the Ukraine, as they have in Belarus. I mean, Russia's kind of, you know, tried to flex their muscles and show what they can do and experiment with what they can do with countries that are very geographically close to them. Uh, there's been some terrible things that they've done. Those countries, especially Belarus has really responded in some savvy and I think very forward looking ways to all that. So anyway, impact of that article for education, we certainly need to be talking about passwords and that kind of gets to the next article uh, on the practical side about being safe, but we also need to be, in our schools, in our colleges, we need to be focused on helping raise awareness about the importance of cyber and how we need students to be, you know, studying the courses, taking the classes and having the interest in that field to protect us. I think cyber warriors today are every bit as important as, you know, physical warriors that are going to be holding, holding a gun or, you know, flying a drone or, or all the different things that, that uh, members of the military that protect us and members of, you know, security forces and, and all that do. So that was security article number one. The second one also from Ars Technica, this is one of the best, you know, practical security articles I have read in months. Um, it's by Sean Gallagher. It's called Securing Your Digital Lifestyle, The Finale, Debunking Worthless Security Practices. Uh, this would be a great article to share with your faculty at school, share with your parents, share with everybody, because what he asks are, what are some of the, the worst advice he's asking security professionals that you've heard people repeat that is just not true? Like, you should change your password every 30 days. Uh, like, never write down your password. Hello, those of us that are using a password manager, who is not having in a secure and safe place your backup codes for your password manager, right? I mean, if you lose access to your password manager, that would be a... It, it's what, what's the word for you know something that's societal ending it's it's not a you know it's not life ending but it would be tremendously stressful and painful to to lose control of your password manager so 
you know, password managers like 1Password have this thing they call the emergency kit. They encourage you to print it and then put it in a place like your fire file or your safety deposit box or whatever to keep that safe. But that is one of those things, as this article points out, people have heard this. It's been in media. They've just, oh, they get this idea. Oh, never write it down. Never write it down. Well, you know, don't take a sticky note and put your password, you know, under your keyboard or on your monitor. Yeah. But to say, don't ever write something down, that is just bad advice. And it, and it goes on. Uh, some people will say that two factor is too scary to do. That's ridiculous. And then this one's interesting, Jason. I'd like to hear your response. They say it's a myth to say my VPN protects me. They say that for most people, this is at home, not necessarily when you're out in coffee shops yeah. and stuff like that. But for most folks, you probably don't actually need a VPN. The HTTPS, Modern Secure, um, you know, encryption that websites use are are pretty effective in protecting your privacy. What you're not protecting yourself from is your your um, service provider, your ISP, you know, seeing the requests that you are making. Um, and then also saying that you don't need an antivirus on Windows machines. Um, it's just a great article. And I thought it was a nice way to approach that. So I am not in a place today in my life where I am briefing our uh, enterprise community on security and passwords as I, as I did for four years. Uh, but if I was, this is a very nice tactic to take. And, you know, even if you're a presenter, you're talking about security, like talking about the myths, the commonly held beliefs that people have and why those are false. I think that's really powerful. So great article. Uh, what's your thought on the on the VPN idea that maybe most people don't need a VPN, at least from home? Do you think that's accurate? <laughs> I do. I mean, unless I mean, the, the article is really interesting. Um, you know, they gave some examples where VPN might be useful with you're at home. Uh, for example, I utilize the University of Montana VPN when I want to access on-campus resources. So I'm going, if I go to the library, the digital library, and I want to access databases and not have to sign in for it, all I need to do is get get in my VPN, which is literally one click on, on my laptop, and then I've, I've access to UM-based resources, which is a good security protocol. I also think that if you are on sketchy Wi-Fi um, and you are using secure, if you're in any way doing anything secure, like HTTPS or secure HTTP, uh, should be good enough to do that privacy. I like the extra protection of a VPN as well. So I just think that that you know uh, when you're when you're trafficking in uh, you know in my case and in in, in Doctor Fryer's case as well, you know all of our school stuff tends to traffic in student data. You're probably secure with an HTTPS site, which is you know almost every every ed tech tool and system will be an HTTPS. I just think we, we should do our due diligence to, you know, utilize those resources whenever possible, but it's certainly not a catch all for security. And I also agree that, um, um, uh, VPNs, uh, like the, to quote the article, VPNs aren't much more effective in protecting your privacy than what you already get from visiting sites using HTTPS. That, that's also true. Um, you know, that said, um, uh, there are a lot of very specialized scenarios that, you know, if you um, are on um, uh, a, a network and you, the the surfing you're doing uh, puts you at risk for whatever reason, um, you're doing private research, uh, you're trying to, uh, as much as possible, uh, 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 maybe visit sites to, to kind of cover your tracks for whatever reason. And that sounds sketchy, but I could think of lots of legitimate reasons why you might want to do so. A VPN will allow you to do that. So, um, 
but yeah, th- this is super interesting. And I, and just at first blush, I agree with most of this stuff. Like changing your password every 30 days is, a, it's terrible. Um, I, I don't think it does much. Uh, and it really discourages, I think, using secure passwords. Um, uh, I also encourage people to write down passwords and they make a great, uh, uh, you know, you don't put it on a sticky note on your monitor, but, you know, as an example of this, we've talked about this in the past, you know, there are additional codes. If you turn on two-factor authentication, they allow you to get into, like, your Google account if if you don't have access to your, your method of doing two-factor authentication. I've done that for every one of my, my Google accounts I've locked down with uh, 2FA because I may not have access to my phone or the Google account. So if I'm traveling internationally, for example... Um, and I need access to Google because it's got, or my Google account because it's got important stuff in it. Um, I would want to carry those passcodes with me. And some guy does put, do a great tweet here. Patrick Kelly says, don't put your password in your wallet. You will literally have to kick my ass to get it. Uh, heck <laughs> of, of, of a lot stronger than a notepad. And he's absolutely right, right? Like, you know, if, uh, if you're carrying it with you, it's as secure as your credit card is. And if you're using basic, you know, security for, for those pieces, then sure, carry your 10, uh, you know, carry your 10 codes in your wallet with you. So yeah, I, 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 great article, really wonderful article. All right. Well, what else would you like to get tonight? Because we got about five minutes left. I just want to note one piece and then I'm, I'm happy to end things, uh, with the geek of the week, but, um, uh, the verge has an article that talks about how the global chip shortage is limiting a lot of Christmas cheer this year, in particular uh, as the holidays uh, uh, become a, a, a shopping season. Things like switches and PS5s and uh, a bunch of consumer electronics uh, are, are starting to report significant shortages. And so, um, you know, maybe this is the year to make make baked goods for your family. Um, and, and or meat and, or smoke meat if you can yeah. deliver it. Yeah, well, and, and let's be clear that, that, uh, you know, um, the temptation of me buying various implements of meat smoking, uh, it becomes higher and higher by the week. But just something to keep in mind. And if you're waiting around for deals, some things aren't going to have deals this year just because there's a shortage of them. It's likely to drive either the cost up or make availability quite limited. So something to keep in mind as you engage in shopping. So two thoughts. We could do a non-EdTech SR show just on Jason brings his smoker questions, and then <laughs> I can bring all the answers that I have. <laughs> That'd be fun. And yeah. then the other thing is maybe uh, we could reach out to our friend Eric Langhorst up in Liberty, who has been on the show and helped us kind of kick off the show with the uh, you know year in review. Maybe we could do this. Like each of us pick like five tech-related gifts, mm-hmm. which could be subscriptions or something else, you know, and then we just talk talk over those in the course of an hour. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I don't know. Let's hear it. I'll reach out to him and, and see, and maybe we can get that set up here. For, yeah, probably sooner rather than later, just because of shopping. You know, if you do it like yeah. right before the holidays, people don't have time to buy those things or order them because of the supply chain. So, yeah. Okay. Sounds well, good. What is your geek of the week, sir? All right. Well, I'm doing two. Um, the Earth View from Google Earth. I actually haven't mentioned this. This is, I, I use different extensions on my. 
Chrome browser, and this is the one that I have up on my school browser. I'm opening up new tabs all the time in front of kids. And every time, if you have this installed, that you open a new tab, you get a new awesome view from Google Earth. And then if you click in the corner, it'll actually take you in the browser-based version of Google Earth to that location, and you can explore it. It's phenomenal. One of the bummers is I don't think it keeps a history of where you've been. And so, like, even just today, I brought one up and then closed it, and they were like, where was that? And I'm like, I have no idea, and I don't think I can get back to it. But it is really, really cool. And my kid, after I showed it to my fifth graders today, they were like, can we you know, show that? And I put it in our Google Classroom, and some of the kids installed it. So that's kind of cool. And then this is actually from my wife and our lower division or elementary uh, campus. This is the Cellcase Vintage Retro 3.5 millimeter telephone handset call phone receiver. It's like the longest title ever. Basically, it is an iOS microphone but it is only 12 bucks it looks just like an old school phone uh and it works great and so um i've i'd heard about these and uh, a while back maybe from seesaw teachers talking about it but um we've got ipads for all of our uh first through fourth graders now and you know they can record with the built-in mic and it's actually pretty good but in terms of doing a little bit of, you know, limiting on ambient noise and just quality. And the kids are holding the, holding the phone up to their ear and it's only 12 (laughs) bucks. So, you know, you get a little nostalgia old school, like, Oh, look, they're talking on the phone, but they're actually recording into their iPad. So I thought that was cool. Yep. That's pretty great. And then I just want to share a tool that, uh, um, that actually matches our, our conversation earlier. Um, as we've talked about, about two years ago, I started the process of setting up an independent, uh, uh, secure password for every website that I, I utilize and then keep it under a password manager. And for me, LastPass is my preferred password manager. But one of the ways I do that is I tend to use 16 or 20 character randomly generated passwords from secure uh, uh, securepassword.net, I think is the name of my tool. And, um, I literally go and type, you know, the word secure password in Google to find every time it's secure password generator at passwordgenerator.net. And you can actually preset settings and get a specialized link. So you can go back to the same one every time, but that's how I do my password generation for websites. Awesome. Well, you well, guys can find me on westfriar.com. How about you, Dr. Knifer? Um, I'm at uh, text savvy teach on Twitter. And I guess we haven't talked about this before, but I'm unavailable next Wednesday. So oh, okay. I think we'll have to take a little, uh, a little holiday break next week. If ah, yes. Here. Yeah. A turkey break. Well, let me just ask you this. Uh, what are the menu items on the knife or menu? Will you be cooking said turkey? And do you have a technique for cooking said turkey? That, that's a great question. Um, so I'm going to my parents this year. So uh, and it's only the second time I've seen my parents since COVID. So we're going to all test up uh, 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 next week and I'll have the opportunity to spend the, the holiday with my parents, which is wonderful. Um, and my parents, um, the last couple of years have been a little minimalistic on, on Thanksgiving, but the one thing I absolutely cannot, uh, uh, miss any Thanksgiving is I'm a huge stuffing fan. So, and you know, stuffing is one of those things that tends to be region specific, even mother specific, but, um, I have a certain, uh, uh, a certain kind of, of, uh, 
uh, a set of ingredients. It's really a kind of a hand down from my grandmother who made a kind of a German version of stuffing. So there's sausage in our stuffing, um, uh, lots of breadcrumbs. Um, uh, sometimes there's walnuts. Um, but I, I just, it's just, it's my favorite part of Thanksgiving hands down. Okay. So in lieu of next week's show, which yes, we will be off next week. I propose Jason, we each share a Thanksgiving recipe. And if you, sir, would be willing to share that, Stuffing recipe, I think that would be excellent, yep. and I will come up with something to share as well. And uh, yeah, and I'm going to be spatchcock cooking our turkey, which is basically when you cut out the spine and flatten the bird. So and I think I may end up actually cooking two. Um, but yeah, it'll be the first year right. to smoke the turkey. Well, well, and maybe we're just getting off into a rabbit hole here about food five minutes after the podcast was supposed to end. But I did see your Instagram posts on spatchcocking, and I'm I'm honestly surprised you haven't heard of it before. I've done it with a chicken yeah. three or four times. It is such an amazing way because it allows you to flatten out the bird. Oh, yeah. So you can evenly cook it. And I've done... It's, it's, I, I'm, a, I'm a little intimidated by it because I'm not very good with the kitchen shears, which is the way to do it with a, with a chicken. Right. But when I've done it, it just, you know, uh, some people talk about brick chicken, which is flattening the chicken out. And when you roast it in the oven or on a barbecue, but spatchcocking makes it just so even and mm -hmm. really yeah. tasty. Absolutely. My mom had given me some pretty formidable kitchen shears a few years ago, which worked great on the chicken. So I've, That's yeah, great. I'm going to, going to, going to do that. So yeah, Peggy, if you want to contribute a recipe, any listener out there, tweet at us, tweet at us at EdTechSR, uh, share your Thanksgiving recipe that has nothing to do with tech news, but Hey, you know what? It's the holiday season and Thanksgiving is one of those traditions that, you know, everybody probably has a slightly different twist on it in the United States as far as what you what you eat and how you celebrate it. And that's kind of fun to get to share. Again, the positive side of social media. See, we are going to tie it back to the themes of the show. Yep, absolutely. Well, um, hey, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family listeners. Uh, Dr. Fryer, happy Thanksgiving to you and the whole Fryer clan. And we'll see you in two weeks. Take great care, and we hope to see you next time on the Edict Situation Room. Adios, everyone.